0: minimum of 4 lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due $35 per line connection charge applies ctmobile.com good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Monday October 29th 2018 I'm your host, Eric Dame. And coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to Melissa Bryant of and Afghanistan Veterans of America. A lot going on right now. Of course, the elections are just over a week away. But more importantly for IAVA, their survey is underway now. That's how they decide what their legislative priorities are going to be for the upcoming year. And they are looking to get as many people as they can, as many members as they can, to respond to that survey They've sweetened the pot for that survey, and they're actually giving away airplane tickets on Southwest Airlines to uh, those who complete the survey or registered for it. And it's essentially a drawing, so you get the opportunity for that. And if you want to join IAVA, of course, as they'll tell us later on today, it's free. You just sign up on their website, and you are good to go. We're also going to talk to Nick Reed. Nick is a veteran of the Royal Navy. That's right, one of our closest allies across the pond over in the UK. Well, Nick was in the uh, Royal Navy, and now he's in Hollywood. That's right, he is a film producer and an Oscar winner. We're going to talk to him about uh, a documentary that he worked on that kind of uses images from World War I and voices from the modern era to kind of show how, well, war never really changes called A Soldier's Story, and we're going to talk to Nick Reed, the producer of that film, and oh, so much more coming up later on today. He's got a fascinating story of getting involved in Hollywood, meeting some big-name people, and then making a name for himself. So all of that is coming up later on in the program. But right now, it's time to take a look around at the news and everything that's going on in the... uh, Uh, We're seeing if we can get Bird Dog into the studio. He's just walking in, so there's a chance if he looks over here. I'll be able to wave him in, and we can discuss these news items with him because, man, there's some interesting things going on, particularly in a place that I was once stationed. Talking about the nation of Iceland. The (laughs) The nation of Iceland. City of Reykjavik is the capital. Keflavik is where the Naval Air Station was that I was stationed. But sometime in uh, 2006, 2007 or so, they shut down Naval Air Station Keflavik, Iceland, and the sailors, Marines, and airmen that were stationed there departed. Essentially, they took down the colors for the last time, walked onto some aircraft, and flew away from that rock in the middle of the North Atlantic. Well, the United States military isn't permanently there anymore, so maybe that's why Iceland was not prepared for 7,000 American sailors and Marines who showed up, to take part in NATO's Trident Juncture exercise. They got to Reykjavik, Iceland, which is a party town, especially in the wintertime, man. In the wintertime, it is cold, it is windy, it is rainy, it is snowy. There's a lot going on there uh, as far as weather, and not much going on there other than having a good time out at the clubs and the bars and all that stuff uh, in downtown Reykjavik. So that's what the sailors and Marines did. They got there, and they basically went directly to the drinking establishments. I know, I know, we're supposed to to talk about how alcohol is is devastating and dangerous, and it certainly can be when it's not taken in moderation. However, young sailors and Marines oftentimes ignore that advice, and that's what they did, according to Iceland magazine, where they went to those local bars and started drinking the beer and all of that good stuff. A local blogger named Erika Jonsson, Said they were fighting an overwhelming force as far as the Icelandic bartenders. The Americans showed up and apparently drank all of the beer on the island. Now, it's not a big island. You got to remember that. The entire population of Iceland is a quarter of a million people or something like that. So the entire nation is the size of, you know, a medium sized city in the United States, population wise. Everything there, of course, is Im- imported. They, they don't grow all that much on the island. Uh, the livestock there, you've got some ponies, you've got some sheep and lamb and all that good stuff. But uh, they do have local breweries, including Ales. That's E G I L S. I believe it's how it's pronounced Ales. It's how I remember it. They make soda and they make beer and they make all that stuff. So apparently, uh, that company, Ales, uh, which is uh, big for Iceland, but small. For uh, 7,000 Marines and sailors, apparently had to go into overtime and immediately began working on emergency beer deliveries because the sailors and Marines drank it all. It's one of those interesting things in talking to uh, some of my Icelandic friends where they said, you know, it was. It was noticeable. It's not like it wrecked the economy or anything when the military left Iceland, but it was noticeable for those who work in the nightlife, those at the restaurants, although not so much the restaurants in Iceland, but more the bars and clubs, just not seeing the amount of people that they would see there, obviously not seeing the same number of Americans, but you had, I don't know, something like 4,000, 5,000 people stationed on that base. And while that's not a massive base, You've got to consider, again, a country of 250,000, well, 5,000 is a fairly large chunk of that. Was it, like 2% of the, uh, same as 2% of the population, just left one day, a little over a decade ago. Uh, they weren't prepared for those 7,000 sailors and Marines to come back as part of this exercise, uh, again, called Trident Juncture, taking place up there in NATO, Iceland, of course, a NATO member, and that's what the job of Naval Air Station Keflavik was. Uh, It was essentially a watching post for the Soviets at the time, and then later on the Russians, who were still doing stuff when I was there. The weekend that I arrived, which would have been in 1999, sometime in the summer, a Russian bomber, a bear as they're called, came into Icelandic airspace, and they actually scrambled the F-16s, uh, that were there with the Air Force on Naval Air Station Keflavik, So uh, it served that purpose, and then the Icelandic government said, uh, well, we don't really think we need you here anymore. Uh, they lost those customers at the bars out in town, you know, those poor bars. They didn't have the sailors and Marines and airmen coming in to drink all their good stuff. Well, they made up for it, <laughs> apparently, during this one, where the sailors and Marines drank the nation of Iceland dry, which is pretty crazy, even for a small country. Speaking of drinking, there is an interesting story up on Military Ties that apparently says a study has found that energy drinks are contributing to PTSD. Yeah. How can that be? Well, it actually kind of makes sense if you look at it. You need to get the right amount of sleep for your mental health, right? If you don't get a good night's sleep, if you are constantly operating on a short amount of sleep, less than you normally would, it has an effect on you. Well, what do energy drinks do? They give you energy. They keep you from sleeping. And thus, according to this study that was done by uh, Military Medicine, which is a journal... The authors of the study, according to Military Times, surveyed over 600 male infantry soldiers during a post-deployment period after they returned from a 12-month combat deployment to Afghanistan. Questions were designed to examine the association of energy drink use with sleep deprivation or insomnia, depression, anxiety, PTSD, alcohol abuse, aggressive behaviors, and fatigue. So what did they find? Well, over the course of the month leading up to the survey, more than 75% of those soldiers consumed energy drinks. I believe it. More surprising, however, was that 16% of soldiers in the study reported continuing to consume two or more energy drinks per day in the post-deployment period. There were energy drinks just free and easy flowing over there in Afghanistan uh, at the American Dining Facility. I worked closer to the German dining facility. They didn't have energy drinks. They had water, juice, soda, that kind of thing. But at the American one, there was a big freezer with uh, the Rippets, I believe is what they were called, or Ripped Fuel, whatever you want to call them, Uh, which we found out after talking to some people in the energy drink industry. The reason that those cans of Rippets were so ubiquitous in Iraq and Afghanistan is because that was the only energy drink company that was willing to make small cans, the six-ounce energy drink cans. You remember those, right? They look like a little little stubby soda can that was over there. Well, it costs more money to ship the 12-ounce cans over, and you get fewer cans to give out to uh, the troops. So essentially, the government said, who is willing to cut in half the size of your energy drinks? That way we'll have more getting over there for the same cost of shipping and all that good stuff, and Rip It were the ones who agreed to do that. So you'd walk in, and there was a, a refrigerator just full of the things. You could grab as many as you wanted. You'd put them in the, uh, the cargo pockets of your ACU and then wander on into work and you'd build up a collection. If you didn't drink all of them on one day, well, you had plenty to drink some other day and they were, I don't know if I would say necessary, but they were certainly helpful some days. You know what I mean? There are days where you're really tired and you could just use that extra burst of energy and yes, coffee is what I usually go for, but only in the morning. I'm not an iced coffee person, and hot coffee in the afternoon, especially if it wasn't freezing cold outside, it just didn't really work for me, so energy drinks. And of course, you'd have other ones available there for purchase, like the uh, the monster energy drinks. The blue one, the low-carb, that was my go-to. I actually had one yesterday while driving back, from, uh, driving back to home from Virginia, as I got a little bit tired towards the end. But the amount that you drink during uh, operational tempo while you're over in a place like Afghanistan or Iraq probably going to be more than what you drink back home, you would think. But according to this study, again, 75% of soldiers consuming energy drink and almost, well, just over 15%, I was going to say almost 20 but 16% in the study continuing to consume two or more energy drinks per day in the post-deployment period. That post-deployment period is when you're supposed to be getting some shut-eye, you know, relaxing, getting, getting some of that energy that you expanded expended. Expanded, expended, expended during a year-long combat deployment to Afghanistan. But people are still chugging the energy drinks, which leads to less sleep, which leads to problems with mental health. It also leads to more physical injuries because people aren't getting the amount of sleep that they should. And even if the energy drink seems to give you a little bit more during the day, uh, you're just staving it off and the, the exhaustion is still there. And yeah, you may be able to physically function, but how much of your mental acuity is affected I know they're supposed to have all sorts of natural things in them, the ginseng and guarana and whatever the heck else is in there. That's supposed to help you uh, with your mental acuity. But really, the lack of sleep is it's going to overdo just about every good. It's going to overtake just about every good thing that those energy drinks do. So essentially what they're saying is cut back on the energy drinks, particularly when you're not deployed, when you're deployed. Sometimes there's not enough time uh, to get as much sleep as you'd like. So, yeah, they serve a purpose. But when you get back, man, cut back on them or do, out, do without them altogether. And it can be tough. You know, for a while after I got back, I was still drinking a lot more energy drinks than I should. Now, eh, only if I get really tired or if I'm on a long drive or something like that. Uh, and if it can affect your mental health when it comes to PTSD and things like that, that's just another reason for you to maybe have a glass of water, maybe some coffee. Something like that. Because these energy drinks, man, not only are they bad apparently for your mental health, you also got a ton of sugar inside of them. It's where a lot of that energy comes from. And the sugar-free ones, they just add a whole bunch of other crap that your body doesn't need to try and get you uh, to where you want to be as far as energy is concerned. Here's an interesting story that's being reported by uh, News 12 ABC, which I believe is out in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it's about tiny homes have you heard about the tiny home phenomenon? There's a lot of TV shows. You'll see them on, uh, oh, I don't know, like Lifetime and A&E where people are either looking for a tiny home or moving into a tiny home. And they are exactly what they sound like, essentially. They're just small homes, you know, a couple hundred square feet, room for one or two people to live in there happily. There are some benefits, of course. You're going to use a lot less uh, uh, of your utilities when you're talking about electricity, gas, oil, whatever the case may be. In some cases, they're mobile. It's pretty easy to move them around. You throw it on a trailer and you move it to wherever you need it to be. Uh, Also, of course, one of the biggest benefits of these tiny homes, you can fit as many of them as you can fit on a plot of land. So let's say a plot of land with a a 2,000-square-foot house. Well, guess what? You're going to be able to fit four 500-square-foot tiny houses On that same plot of land, maybe more if you use more of the yard. So there are benefits to that uh, if you look at it just logistically (laughs) From, from uh, from the utilities and from the land usage perspective. That's certainly something that is a benefit. But here's another benefit, getting homeless people off the streets and for less cost than building a big home. That's right. Well, there is a village in Racine, Wisconsin that has got 15 tiny homes that have apparently been quite life-changing for some veterans who were struggling, who didn't have a home. Now, they have a village of 15 tiny homes, and they they look kind of like, I mean, if you look from the outside, they look almost like your shed that you might have in your backyard, but inside, it's got a bedroom, it's got a TV, it's got a bathroom, it's got a kitchen, it's got all of the things, it's like a, uh, a nice little apartment. What are those apartments called where it's specifically made just small space? You're there to live and then get out and work. Uh, I'm losing losing the term for those small those small apartments. But these tiny houses, they're a little bit different than an apartment. And I think part of the reason why these can be a good answer to the homelessness issue is that you have a little bit more privacy and you're a little bit more on your own. You know, when you're in an apartment building, you're seeing all your neighbors, there's noise coming through the wall and all that stuff. But if you're in an individual little tiny house, I don't know. I feel like it would probably give you the feeling that you have some ownership and some onus over what's going on in your life that you might not have if you're living in a uh, a big apartment or a big house. So these tiny houses, we've been seeing more of this. This one village, the James A. Peterson Veteran Village in Racine, Wisconsin, uh, is just one. We've seen a lot of stories about this and about how tiny houses are being used to help the veteran community, specifically those veterans, of course, struggling with homelessness. I don't know what do you think you think it's a better idea than having uh, a big facility like these veterans homes that are really apartment buildings where you might have 250 people uh in a bunch of rooms on in an apartment building or these little houses where again you might have more of a feeling of you know doing it on your own or being on your own which is sometimes uh what you need as far as home living is concerned i mean yes you need people around you helping you out but you might have this feeling of this is my home, this is my little piece. It's not just an apartment; this is my tiny home. You can find out more about those. You know, Google tiny homes or James A. Peterson Veteran Village. There's a pretty cool video up there uh, from TV12, the ABC affiliate out in Milwaukee, that's got all of the information that you could possibly want to see on it. And you can check out what these tiny houses are. Again, from the outside, kind of looks like a shed, like a garden shed, but on the inside oh man, there is a heck of a lot more to it than that. For a while, my wife was watching one of those tiny home TV shows and she was thinking, you know what, I think we could do that and I think we should do that. And I said, not with a five-year-old. If it were just the two of us, okay. But you add a child into the mix, eh, I don't know about those. But it is an interesting thought. And you see some of the tiny houses uh, on the TV shows specifically and think to yourself, wow, yeah, I could probably live in one of those. I could probably do that. Again, then you throw in a, a child to the mix and it gets a little bit more questionable. We talked about this a little while ago. There's a a TV show called Military Makeover that was being hosted by R. Lee Ermey. That's right, the gunny, the honorary gunny. R. Lee Ermey, of course, getting out of the Marine Corps, I believe, is a staff sergeant, but passed away. Last year, uh, kind of the voice of the Marine Corps, the unofficial voice of the Marine Corps. Of course, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, He was in Apocalypse Now where he played a soldier, not a Marine. Uh, And then afterwards, kind of built up this cottage industry of military-centered TV shows and documentaries. There was Mail Call with Arlie Ermey and Military Makeover, which is kind of like Extreme Home Makeover. Remember that show? Move that bus. The guy, what's his name? Got a couple DUIs. Got in some trouble. Is that show still on? I'm not sure, but Military Makeover, well, people were wondering if that show was still going to be on after Arlie Ermey leaves. It's kind of the issue when you have someone who is such a definitive voice, someone who's so closely tied with everything that they're affiliated with, what happens when they you know, retire or, in this case, when they pass away like Arlie Ermey did? It's going to be kind of hard to find a host who can check off some of those same boxes that the Gunny did. Well... Lifetime television and the show Military Maker, Makeover, not Military Maker, uh, apparently they believe that they've found the right man to check off some of those boxes, and he is someone who has talked to Connecting Vets about his life and what he's got going on several times, and he's a veteran of the United States Navy and apparently the United States Marine Corps. I didn't even know about that part of him. Montel Williams. That's right. Montel Williams is the new host of Military Makeover, and uh, it's it's really an interesting, fascinating show. But behind that show is the story of Montel Williams, who earlier this year almost died. Did you know about that? I didn't know about it, but Phil Briggs found out about it. We've got a great interview with Montel Williams right there on ConnectingVets.com, and you can go. Uh, Check that out. Talks about the show and talks about the fact that he suffered a cerebellum hemorrhagic stroke. So that means essentially blood vessel broke in the back of his cerebellum, started pumping blood into the back of his head. That's bad news. That's really bad news. Montel almost left us. Instead, he was able to pull through it, and now he's hosting a military makeover. He talked to Phil Briggs all about that, and you can check it out at ConnectingVets.com. Uh, apparently, our website was having some issues a little bit earlier on today, but now those issues, mostly or primarily, seem to be fixed. You know what they're still working on fixing? The GI Bill issues. We talked to the VFW about that on Friday. We've talked to a number of the VSOs, and we're hearing some pretty bad stories coming out of the student veteran population. The VFW tells us they've gotten eviction notices and repossession notices sent to them from their membership and non-members who are contacting their veteran service officers. It's a problem. The fact that the VA was not prepared to institute the changes to the Forever GI Bill or the changes that make it the forever GI bill, particularly pertaining to the, um, change in the, uh, living stipends that people get where now it's going to be in the zip code of your school, not the zip code of your house. They just weren't prepared for that. And because of that, they've essentially still not gotten the money to, well, as of last Friday, around 120,000 veterans who are still having issues with the GI bill. Uh, they do have, uh, places on their website, that you can contact them at um, to to try and straighten that out. And if you're someone who's having trouble paying the bills because you're not getting that money, or if you're getting an eviction notice or a repossession notice, don't let it get to that point. Before that, you've got to call the VA's Education Call Center and let them know that you're having financial hardship. The phone number is 888-442-4551. That's 888-442-4551. Five, five, one. And when the agent answers the phone, you tell them that you are having a financial hardship and you want to process your claim as a financial hardship, which should expedite the process. And you should receive that payment in 24 to 48 hours. And it does not require any additional uh, forms on top of it. So there you go. Oh, and here's something coming in uh, as we were talking about Military Makeover with uh, Montel Williams now as the host. The Military Makeover Show actually gets VSOs and other charities to fund the makeovers. And extend, uh, in exchange, they highlight the VSO funding that episode. Well, there you go. Little you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And just shows another thing that the VSOs are out there doing for the veterans. Thanks to Joe Schinelli for letting us know about that. Now, here's the thing. If you call the VA's Education Call Center, again, 888 888- 442 4551 and tell the agent that you need to process your claim as a financial hardship and you don't get that money in 24 to 48 hours, contact the VFW. Tony Lowe was in here last Friday and told us hey, send us an email to the number one student veteran at vfw.org. That's one student veteran. At vfw.org. And if it's not processed uh, within those 24 to 48 hours, Tony and the VFW team will contact the VA directly uh, and do whatever they can. And they do have those connections and they are able to contact those people. Comment coming in from Michael on our Facebook Live segment I was in combat for 377 days and only received 60% of my post 911 GI Bill. That's not right. That's absolutely not right. So, again, Michael, what I would recommend. That's the VA's education call center. Now, if you're not receiving the money that you're supposed to at this moment, and again, as of Friday, about 120,000 vets still not receiving the proper GI Bill benefit payment, call that number. And if you don't get the money within 24 to 48 hours, contact the VFW, one student veteran at VFW.org, or contact the service officers at any of the VSOs and let them know what's going on with you. And they will do what they can to help you. Whether you're a member or not, Joe Cinelli, executive director of Amvets, is watching this right now and listening to this like he does most days of the week, I think. Their organization was more than willing to contact the VA for members, non-members, anybody, veterans. That's who they're there to help. And for anybody out there, whoever wonders, well, what, do, what do the VSOs do? What am I paying for if I become a member of the VSO? This is what they do. They help not only their members, but all veterans deal with things like not getting the right money from their GI Bill payments. And because they have the direct lines and direct contacts to the Department of Veterans Affairs and others within the veteran space, it gives them the ability to go directly in there and contact them uh, about what's going on with individuals or with groups. Of course, I suppose the question is, why can the VA process these payments in 24 to 48 hours just because you tell them it's a financial hardship? Every veteran not receiving their GI Bill payment is receiving a financial hardship issue or is having a financial hardship issue, even if it doesn't get to the point of a repossession or an eviction. Seems like they should should be able to get this done a little bit quicker than they are. According to the numbers they've given out, it looks like, uh, you know, by the end of this week or this weekend, maybe they should have all of this stuff straightened out again. The VA says things like that when it comes to these administrative issues fairly regularly, so I'm going to wait to see uh, until it's actually finished. I'm not going to make any predictions on when that actually will be because, again, we are now mm, a week and a half away from one year out from the VA ID card, and still a whole bunch of people I know who put in for it have not received it. That's unacceptable. What is acceptable? This show right here. Coming up, we are going to talk to Nick Reed. He's a Royal Navy veteran, an Oscar winner. He's got this amazing documentary film called A Soldier's Story, which kind of shows you that in the last hundred years, since the end of World War I, war has not really changed. Yeah, of course, there's new technology and everything, but overall, still the same, man. Still the same. Also, going to talk to Melissa Bryant of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America coming up a little bit later the morning briefing from Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day and doing it right after this. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan. It's what we're doing, and I'll tell you where we're doing it. It's right there in the name, ConnectingVets.com, but also on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The latest articles, the latest videos, the latest audio, podcasts, radio shows, everything that's happening on ConnectingVets.com. Well, you'll be made aware of it by following us on social media. So again, at Connecting Vets, give us a little click of your mouse or tap on your phone and you'll be that much closer to living your best veteran life. Our next guest is leaving a pretty interesting veteran life. Of course, he's a veteran of a different nation's armed forces, though, the Royal Navy to be specific. He is Nick Reed, Oscar-winning film producer, and joins us now on The Morning Briefing. Nick, good morning. How are you today?
1: (laughs) That's a great introduction. Thank you. I'm very good. You?
0: <laughs> I'm doing all right. Thanks. And as I mentioned, you served in, well, it may not be you know, my United States Navy, but certainly one of our closest allies, the Royal <laughs> Navy, I believe as a pilot. Give us a little bit of your military background, you know, where you're originally from, when you joined the, the Royal Navy and what you did during your time serving.
1: Um, well, actually I'm third generation. So my father's father uh, was in the Royal Navy, unfortunately he died at sea <clears throat> torpedo. Um, my father uh, then joined the Navy, and he was in the electronics. Uh, and I joined the um, beginning of the 80s, and I joined uh, as a, a pilot. Um, <clears throat> spent two years in the Navy. Most of that time was in training. Um, I would say probably there were many amazing things about that time, but probably one of the most amazing things about that time was I got taught to fly by World War II fighter pilots who used to fly hurricanes and um, spitfires. Uh, and in aviation, there is a saying, which is there are old pilots and there were bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. Um, and these guys were old, bold pilots, and they were just the most amazing uh, people in their 70s, fit as a fiddle, sharp, uh, risking lives on, on the younger uh, pilots. And uh, it was just an amazing time. And I think that um, one of the things that makes uh, the forces just generally so fantastic is its sense of tradition and also its sense of family.
0: I'd say that I certainly agree with that. And, of course, uh, one of the other similarities between every armed force that I'm aware of, everybody's got to get out at one point or another. As you said, you did a few years (laughs) in the Royal Navy. What do you remember about that period of time in your life when you went from, you know, a couple years of wearing the uniform every day to one day you wake up and you're going to be able to put on whatever clothes you want?
1: Um, I think one of the things that always made me smile about being in the Navy was uh, the phrase, uh, we're going to do a character-building exercise now. And the phrase character building exercise normally meant that something very uncomfortable, very cold, very dark was about to happen. (laughs) And I I just, you know, in in, in the real world, people would scream at you to make you do something. But I just love the fact that in the services, um, they use this kind of uh, very lovely language. And so whenever you heard the phrase character building, you would just like, oh no, this is not gonna be pleasant. But of course, looking back on it, that's some of the most amazing memories at the time, uh, wasn't perhaps something you look forward to. Um, I remember, for example, the first time we did tear gas, uh, just to make you understand what tear gas is like. Um, and I just remember every, all of us in a, in a small room with, like, you know, with our masks on, uh, ready to take them off and say our serial number and then walk out, not run, but walk outside. And I just remember taking my mask off, giving my, uh, my serial number, walking out outside uh, into the fresh air and thinking, oh, that's not so bad. <laughs> and then suddenly it hit you and you were suddenly, you know. Crying and just like oh, but I, I just I just love particularly in the time of the British Navy I just love the kind of the very kind of uh, uh, formal kind of way of doing things. So please take your mask off and please walk, don't run.
0: <laughs> That's certainly a way to look at it. You know, I, I actually have been through a gas chamber in England at RAF Lakenheath sometime in the year ninety nine or two thousand, I believe. Uh, it wasn't as bad as the one I did in boot camp, but it was still not very pleasant. When it comes time to leave the service for our counterparts in the UK, we've talked to a few. We talked to uh, one who just finished walking uh, a thousand miles across the United States, who told me that there's there's only recently been a build up of programs for veterans, for people getting out of the military. Uh, when you got out during your time in service in the 80s, was there anything like that available to veterans in the UK?
1: Um, I, I, not that I'm fully aware of. I mean, for me, something very you know, wonderful happened, which is uh, with, a, with a fellow pilot. Uh, we entered uh, entered a competition in Scotland um, in a small town uh, that had an airport, and they were looking to attract aviation businesses. And we were lucky enough to win the the competition. And basically, what our um, project that we submitted was was that we both loved aerobatics. Um, and aerobatics is really a one person sport. Uh, when you have two people in the plane, the second person doesn't normally do so well. Um, so we had found this uh, 1940s Belgium Uh, or wooden uh, plane that was a beautiful aerobatic aircraft and um, there was some evolution in the use of uh, the VW block engines are quite normal in permit to fly aircraft in Europe and also the States and someone come along and put uh, fully injected oil systems and uh, fuel system in it and suddenly this little plane could suddenly go 50% faster And suddenly, you can do an awful lot of aerobatics. So, uh, I was very lucky that I actually started a company building single-seater fully aerobatic aircraft. And I can actually say, in addition to flying planes, I've actually physically built one. Oh wow! um, Which is, um, I can't. Yeah, it wasn't something I set out to do, but um, you know, we won the competition, and we were like, um, okay, well, I guess we better go make one.
0: We're speaking with Nick Reed. He is a former Royal Navy pilot. He's an Oscar winner. He's the producer of an amazing short film called Soldier Stories. Now, Nick, we just talked about you flying in the Royal Navy. We talked about you building these aerobatic aircraft. How does one go from that lifestyle to, well, Hollywood, essentially, to the world of film and entertainment and producing? How did that become a part of your life?
1: Um, well, America is indeed a wonderful place. Uh, in my, when I was about 28 years old, um, I just really wanted to try and experience something different. And when I was uh, 18, I, I studied geography, and I love geography. And I had this feeling that one day I would live in America, uh, particularly California uh, or Australia, just something about the climate. Um, and I had a friend of mine come out here who was an athlete running for Great Britain. And he said, hey, why don't you come out and spend the summer? So I basically came out and spent the summer just north of San Diego. And I ended up meeting a few uh, athletes. One of them was Don Walker, the New Zealand gold medalist. Uh, another one was a guy called Steve Scott, who was the American mile record holder at the time. Um, and I suddenly kind of got into this California lifestyle, and then a couple crazy things happened. Uh, one of the things was that I ended up going to an audition uh, because of those runners, and I became uh, a leg model for Adidas. And I was featured in billboards all over America. Well, <laughs> from my, from my, from my hips down, anyway. Um, and then the other crazy thing was um, a friend of mine said, they looking for um, extras for a movie called Hook. And I didn't know what that was. And um, I have long hair. I look a little bit like kind of Oscar Wilde with the droopy eyes. And I get a phone call on a Friday um, from a casting office at Sony saying, Hey, um, would you be interested in coming in and, and uh, meeting us for uh, the role of uh, Robin Williams' father in the movie Hook? And I'm like, uh, okay. Okay. And they said, so come up on Monday and say Steven. And I said, uh, sure, Steven who? They went, uh, Steven Spielberg. I went, oh, okay, great. So my first person I ever met in Hollywood was Warren Beatty, who was shooting Bugsy at the time on a, on a different uh, st- uh, studio, uh, stage. And then I went in to see Steven Spielberg, who said, look, I think if Robin Williams was uh, you know, a young, young man in 18th century England, he goes, I think he looked like his father. Would you like to pay Peter Pan's father in my movie? And I'm like, uh, yes. So I spent three days on the set uh, working with Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman and Steven Spielberg. And I didn't really like being an actor because there was an awful lot of sitting around. But that kind of got me to Hollywood. And, um, you know, I always had a, a love of kind of marketing. Um, and I realized that movies is very conceptual. And I suddenly found myself, you know, in one of the biggest films of the year with some of the biggest actors and the biggest director. And I thought, oh, maybe I should um, spend some more time thinking about being in the movie business.
0: And of course you have, and to great success. I mean, when people go, uh, they can look you up on Wikipedia, IMDB. They've got all the different productions that you've been involved in. Of course, uh, you are an Oscar winner for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject for the 2013 film, The Lady in Number 6, Music Saved My Life. And the reason that we're talking to you today specifically is because, well, first, you being a veteran, but also about a film called Soldiers' Stories that came out a few years ago, but has this kind of uh, rebirth, I would say, this year, because we are reaching the 100th anniversary of World War One or the ceasing of hostilities in World War One. I, I should say. Um, where did the idea for Soldiers' Stories came from, and, and how did you get involved in the production of that? documentary
1: um so when i was an agent um and i worked on some very big franchise pictures like uh, born identity and meet the parents and austin powers and underworld and resident evil um i just saw this spot in the franchise market 20 years ago or well, 25 years ago which today everyone has franchises but back in the day it didn't it wasn't really a thing um i developed a, a project with a writer and a big producer on world war one and in reading the script that my writer had written, I, I was just re- my passion for you know World War One had been renewed, and there were so many crazy, crazy stories. Uh, and it's just such an incredibly rich war, uh, both in some amazing stories and also in the, in the horrible stories. Um, and a Canadian director came to me and said, like, I want to do a story on World War One, um, and he basically wanted to do a 3D film. So at the turn of the century, 3D photography was actually at its peak. Uh, And during the war, there were thousands and actually probably hundreds of thousands of pictures taken in 3D. Um, And what I said to him is, I said, look, I love the period and I love the idea of doing a 3D film. And the film ended up becoming the oldest 3D film ever. But I said, I I need to find a way, a contemporary way to connect the war, because, you know, it's hard to think about something that was so long ago. And we both came up with an idea, which is that we were going to interview veterans um, and for the film, mostly American veterans who had done um, tours in Iraq or Afghanistan over the last six, seven years. And what we did is we uh, developed a line of questions about why they joined up, what it was like to go through boot camp, what it was like to get deployed, what was it like before you went into battle, what was it like in battle, and you know, what was it like after battle? Um, And what we did is we basically took these incredible images of World War I in their beautiful 3D glory. And then the narration of the film is basically uh, veterans talking about their experiences. And what came out of it, it was so beautiful and so powerful, was that it was a way of veterans listening to other veterans who, you know, when you've come out of war, uh, it's sometimes hard to find someone who understands what you've gone through. And because you're looking at these images of World War I, but you're hearing the, the voices of, of soldiers in the last decade, somehow you seem to register what's going on. And what the big thing I wanted to try and show is that really nothing has changed for a soldier in 100 years. The soldier is still the person that is, you know, chasing uh, into battle, is still getting shot at by basically the same kind of bullet. And the camaraderie of what it means to be a soldier hasn't really, really changed. And I think that the obviously in 100 over 100 years, uh, people are slowly realizing what it's like when someone gives service. Um, And the real hope from the film was that it would give people an insight into what it's like for veterans to come back. And the thing that was very uh, upsetting when the movie was finished is the people I was worried about were the veterans because we spent a lot of time on the sound system and and the stories are very powerful. And, um, you know, I met with veterans who basically were these incredible men who'd been on several tours and they would be in tears. They kind of felt like someone had listened to them, that they had connected with something. And it was unbelievable, really unbelievable. The problem was the theater owners uh, were so taken by the power of the film, because these are veterans telling you exactly what it's like to go to war and what it's like after war. Um, they felt like it was too it was too it was just too intense. So we had this strange dynamic where the veteran community loved the film. Um, but yet the theaters that were showing the films uh, weren't really interested in showing it because they felt it was too powerful. Um, Sorry, I kind of rambled a bit there, but it's, it's something I got so excited about because the, the initial goal was to have people have insights into what it's like to be a veteran. But the thing that came out of it that I, was, I didn't expect, which was so beautiful, was it actually allowed veterans to connect to their experience and other veterans.
0: And that is a beautiful thing, and we're speaking with a veteran, Nick Reed, veteran of the Royal Navy. He was a pilot there, then went on to do many other things, including as a film producer an actor. He's an Oscar winner. When you talk about soldiers' stories in particular, when it comes to the other projects you've worked on, I mean— my goodness, you just told us about meeting Warren Beatty and Steven Spielberg hiring you to play in Hook. Where does Soldier's Stories rank in the list of Nick Reed's accomplishments well, on the Hollywood side of things? I'm not going to p- compare it to your military service and any of that stuff, but uh, where? How, how proud are you of the work that you were able to do with Soldier's Story and the stories you were able to tell?
1: I think that for me, as I get older, the thing that matters the most is uh, the, the power of um, the human uh, body. In that um, the things that that are the most powerful and mean the most to anyone are those things that are authentic. And I think that, you know, humans in general are an amazing, amazing race. And in war, what war does is it brings out the best in people, also sometimes the worst in people. But you can see average people do extraordinary things. And I think that for me, meeting some of these veterans and, and seeing what they did, I mean, literally putting their life on the line. And I think really also understanding Uh, the feeling of camaraderie. So here we are in a digital age where everyone has thousands of digital friends, but yet no one has any friends. And I think the one thing that to me was so powerful from interviewing all the veterans was the fact that everyone um, who left the services, one of the biggest problems they faced was kind of the the loss of family. And I think, you know, to see uh, grown men talk about how the fact that they loved, you know, their brothers and would literally, you know, uh, jump on grenades and basically protect them because that's how important the family was that was very, very humbling. And I think that you know all of us in, in families with our own uh, kids and, and wives um, would love to have that level of intensity. And I think that that spirit of, um, of living and that spirit of loving is probably the thing that really blew me away the most. So I would say it was probably one of the most dramatic films I've done because you were dealing with real people in real, real real world situations, this wasn't like fiction. This was real fact. And I, and I found that to be incredibly powerful. And for veterans to trust me to tell their stories was a, was a huge honor.
0: World War I is considered, you know, the advent of modern warfare. It was also certainly the entry of the United States onto the world political stage in a way that, that we never had been before. Yet... World War One is often overshadowed by the larger conflict that would follow, of course, in World War II and the fact that it was much like the song of the era over there. And there wasn't uh, really that much film coming back. There weren't as many radio broadcasts. Do you think it's important to make sure that people uh, learn as much as they can or as aware of, as they can be of everything that took place in World War I, which was geopolitically just a uh, you know a landmark event?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is actually quite crazy is that, you know, everyone uses the world the word or the phrase World War. And World War Two was not really a world war um, in that, you know, there were only a small number of countries involved. And obviously those countries were very powerful. But in World War One, you literally had 100 countries. There, there were countries that would send like 100 men to battle. I mean, it truly was a world war. Um, and the thing about that war was that it was so personal because it was just on the transition, you know, sort of guns had gone just from sort of single shot into automatic, the horse, the, you know, the horse cavalries were just kind of at the end and suddenly they were, you know, they were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing the, the tank. So World War I was this incredible period where technology had, was speeding up so quickly, you know, the planes, uh, you know, the, the, the speed of the plane, the, the payload of the plane, was changing so massive over that short period of time, and World War One to me was a transitional period in that the whole war, the whole world took took part in it. Plus, technology was changing so quickly, and yet at its core, it was still a face-to-face war. Uh, as you go into World War Two and, and more recent wars, you have technology becomes a bigger part of it. So I think for me, World War One was kind of the was the last of the of the human face-to-face mano a mano kind of wars, uh, and I think it shows you know some of the biggest problems with uh, with leadership. Um, and um, and strategy, and I think you know the soldier is an amazing, an amazing person who is, is who follows the lead of the of the leaders of a country, and I think if anything, it just means in today's world we just need to be everyone needs to be more responsible to having input into what the countries do. You
0: know, when you talk about the the failures in leadership, it always makes me think back actually to an English product. Blackadder goes forth from Rowan Atkinson, where they described going over the top as being an effort to move the Field Marshal's liquor cabinet six inches closer to (laughs) Berlin, which really, I mean, a lot of it was that, and it was truly a a monumental event, World War I, also a a horrifying event, of course. You had the advent of mechanized uh, tanks, you had aircraft being used in warfare, widely for the first time ever, artillery being used in ways uh, that were never used before, and as is pointed out in Soldier's Story... Not all that much has changed about warfare in the last hundred years. Yes, we have fighter jets and supersonic and there's nuclear weapons and everything. But uh, at the bare bones level, particularly for the men and women who are involved in it, it's, it stayed the same. Was that something that you kind of had an idea of going in or did you learn more about it through the, uh, the production of Soldier's Story?
1: Um, one of the wonderful things about documentaries is you normally start your journey with an idea and then you normally end up somewhere else. Um, each time we interviewed a veteran, it led us somewhere else. Um, each time we found a new library of 3D photographs, we, we found something else. Um, we found that when you looked at the photographs taken by the French, the German, the Americans, and the English, you could tell who took them by the style of them. Um, the, uh, French were very casual, didn't care, showed you anything. The German was very precise. You know, the English was very kind of propaganda and very staged. Um, And you started getting these different insights into the trenches. And obviously, you know, we all know some of these fantastic stories about, like, the football game on New Year's Day when the Germans and English played. uh, When the actual men themselves were allowed to choose, you know, they wanted to bond. They they didn't want to fight. Um, And you have these incredible stories. And then you have these uh, incredible stories of, uh, you know, uh, a small group of men overcoming huge odds. Uh, You have these incredible stories of... um, soldiers who basically have gone out and saved hundreds of their, of their fellow soldiers. Um, so it's this whole complete mismatch. And, uh, and probably I would say I, I still read on uh, papers and old books that I find on the war. And it still uh, never ceases to amaze me, like how many just incredible stories that we're not aware of. And World War I, the soldier story was really kind of a, an attempt to get people to kind of understand really what it's like to be a soldier. Um, because I, that that really was my biggest goal, which was that, you know, when you see all these veterans come back, you know, some are struggling with uh, what they experienced. Some are able to get uh, get on with things. But the main thing I wanted people to understand is when you see a veteran who's been on tour but, you know, this is someone who's gone through stuff that they could never explain to you because you wouldn't understand. And my hope would be that people seeing the film would give veterans a little bit more patience, a little bit more respect and understand, you know, what they've gone through. That was really my my primary goal.
0: Well, I think it's a goal you've accomplished, having seen the film. And actually, that's my next question for you. If people out there are interested in seeing Soldier's Story, is there a way for them to view this film?
1: Um. At the moment, no, we did have it out in some theatres. I think right now the only theatre that's running it is the National Infantry Museum. Uh, and ironically, there is a big um, theatre in Singapore uh, that is screening it as well. Um, there is a, a trailer online on YouTube called Soldier Story. Uh, and if someone really wants to see it, um, they can uh, email me uh, at i Nick reed at gmail.com, I, Nick reed at gmail.com, and I can try and find a way to uh, tell them how to see the film. I'm still hoping to get it back into theatres, but like I said, the the strange thing here is that uh, when the film is screened, it is very powerful and very intense, um, and um, that's what makes it so special, but the theatre owners are almost a little scared of it.
0: Is it also a struggle with the more short-form pieces, the short-form documentaries, to get theaters that don't specialize in that to play something like this? I mean, there was an era in the past where this is the kind of thing that might be shown before a film, and people can think of like the Pixar movies and the little animated shorts. Was it also difficult finding a a home for it because of that?
1: Um, In the specialized market... um uh, because this film actually is also a large format film. Um, so it, my, my director was a little crazy. So this is, the, this is the oldest 3D film in the world because all the original images are, are from the, the actual period of the war. Um, and it's also a large screen format, which means it can play on massive huge IMAX type screens. A lot of those films, you know, they do run films in the 20, 30 minute category. But like I said, the problem is when you see a film like this on a big screen with this unbelievable sound mix, um, it's very, very intense. And what makes the film special is the narration by the veterans who you can hear in their voices that what they're telling you that they're experiencing. And that is what makes the film so powerful. But yet what makes it so intense and scary for the theater owners? So I really think the biggest problem I have with the film is um, people's fear that it's, it's too intense for the average person is going to watch it.
0: Well, that's certainly, uh, you know, when it comes to films, that can actually be a good problem to have. But it sounds like it's gone a little bit overboard uh, with this one. And we're speaking with Nick Reed uh, and we're talking about Soldier Story. It's a short film. Again, you can contact him, I, nick Reed, R-E-E-D, at gmail.com to find out more information about it. Nick, where else can people go to find out about, well, your entire work? I mean, from acting, producing, directing, all the different things that you've done. Where can Where's the best place for people to go to find out more about Nick Reed and what you're currently
1: working on? Uh, Well, I have a website, nickreed.com. I spend a lot of my time working for brands, working on uh, viral content online, uh, working for companies like Pepsi and the Olympics and AT&T. And basically the thing I try to do is I try to specialize in what I call doing video projects that give value. A lot of my brand work is uh, three to four minute films. Um, But the idea is rather than trying to like, you know, advertise and just push something into someone who doesn't want it, the idea is to find a way of giving someone value and get the messaging in uh, within that. So what that allows me to do is it gives me a very good understanding of how the digital ecosystem uh, works. Uh, Right now I'm finishing a a documentary about an amazing lady called Claire Wineland uh, who passed away six weeks ago at the age of 21. Uh, She suffered from cystic fibrosis, but she was one of the most alive people uh, I've ever met. Um, And my documentary that won the Academy Award was about a 110 year old Holocaust survivor. Uh, And in Claire, who I met when she was 20, um, I saw the same, the same sort of flame burning so brightly that I saw in Alice. So the thing I love about documentary filmmaking is you're able to find people that are so special. And the hope is that you can then bring their story uh, to a wider audience. So that's what I'm working on at the moment.
0: That website again, Nickreed.com. And Nick Reed, we want to thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate the work that you've done with Soldier's Story and all of the other great content that uh, that you've produced out there in Hollywood. Thanks so much, Nick.
1: Thank you. And uh, keep doing your great work. I think that one of the most important things is a feeling of connection. Um, And I hope uh, the word gets out and more and more people start following you. So thank you, Eric.
0: Welcome back to the morning briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day is the slogan. It's what we're doing and where are we doing it? At ConnectingBets.com, of course, and also on social media where we are at Connecting bets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. No MySpace, no GeoCities. We're still working on that. We'll get those up and running eventually. I hope, uh, and maybe we'll put you in our top eight when we finally do get a MySpace page up. In the meantime, follow us on the Big Four of social media again at Connecting that's A little click on your mouse or tap on your phone, you'll be that much closer to living your best veteran life. One of the things you'll see on there occasionally is a story from the conversations we have with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America one of the newest and largest veteran organizations focusing on the post 9-11 veteran experience and right now their chief policy officer melissa bryant united states army veteran joins us in studio melissa how are you doing this morning
2: i'm doing lovely this monday morning how are you
0: i'm never lovely on a monday morning
2: it's, <laughs> it's, i'm n- faking it until i make it's, it <laughs> it's
0: not possible for me but uh, we do have some very uh, uh good stuff to talk to you about and really the biggest thing with iava that's going on right now we talked to steph mullen a little bit about last week and that is the survey Mm -hmm. Now, the survey is essentially going to lay down the groundwork and the roadmap for what IAVA does over the next year. What can you tell us from a uh, chief policy officer perspective about the importance of this survey that's underway right now?
2: Well, absolutely. I'm glad that Steph gave you all a primer. Numbers are her jam. And so uh, the numbers that we take from this survey that hopefully all of you listening have signed up to take will give us the direction for our policy. When we look at taking policy positions, when we look at what it is that we need to advocate for on behalf of our population, we first go to that member survey. It's critical data that gives us everything from your political views to how you view VA healthcare, what whether you think of the administration, whether you think of taking a knee. Like it, it, it really runs the gamut of all of those things. But it does help for me as chief policy officer to look strategically across the board As we have a new Congress coming in in January and we think about what we want to legislate for, do we want to advocate further for burn pits? Is there something else that's more important and pressing to you guys? That's how we prioritize our policy agenda.
0: And that's important. And it's also uh, interesting that... You know, in years gone by, some organizations within the veteran space and others kind of had their board of directors and everything that kind of decided where it was all going to go. And they'd hear from the membership uh, indirectly and then they'd hear from them a little bit more directly at like their national conventions every year. IAVA wants to hear directly from the memberships. Do you think that... Your uh, setup that's a little bit different from the other VSOs, there are no, like, IAVA post, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, that has the uh, the brick-and-mortar location like, say, VFW or, uh, or uh, American Legion does. Do you think that's actually kind of beneficial when it comes to finding out exactly what everybody wants and getting the, the direct message from them?
2: It absolutely is, and it's why the media, it's why lawmakers, it's why the administration look to us for that data on the post-911 generation. It is the most comprehensive, the most extensive survey of the post 11 generation because it goes well beyond VA healthcare. It goes along the lines of your atmospherics, your attitudes uh, towards all things of veteran life. And we want to ensure that we're advocating for you in that behalf. And so when in t- going back all the way to, say, 2014, you told us that you wanted to see cannabis as a treatment option for everything from PTSD to chronic pain. And we listened and we've listened year over year as we watch that trend go up each year. Uh, same goes for burn pits. When we added that to the policy agenda this year, or rather not to the policy agenda, but to our top six policy priorities this year, that was directly due to what we continue to see in the member survey, and that is more and more folks who are coming to us and saying that we're experiencing something, we don't know what, but some sort of ailment from our toxic exposures downrange. We knew that that was a problem unique to our population, and that's why we wanted to sound the alarms on it this year. And we'll continue to do that, presumably, going into next year.
0: We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for Iraq and Afghanistan, Veterans of America. Are there any things that you've been hearing about through your interaction with IAVA members, like during the recent Storm the Hill event? And, of course, uh, you guys are in touch with your membership uh, throughout the year. Have there been any topics that you've heard rumblings of that you think people are getting more and more focused on that might be uh, uh, added to your legislative priorities in the next year?
2: Uh, well, I can't say exactly what we're going to add to what we're starting... What we are seeing are continued focus and thoughts on what were already our top six policy priorities, which is good because it means that we're spot on in doing the bigging for our membership and in doing everything that uh, our members want us to do. But um suicide prevention is still number one. i I don't know if that's going to go away. Um, it seems to be the thing that most resonates within the community and um, whether you yourself or someone who has struggled with suicide, uh, suicidal ideation, or know someone who has died by suicide, it's clearly something that we need to continue focus on going into 2019.
0: Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, it's it's uh, not going to go away as a legislative priority, and unfortunately it doesn't seem like it's going to go away as an issue within the veteran community. And the, the data that we've seen most recently actually shows an increase in the amount, or sorry, the suicide rate, I should say, right. among veterans under 35, right. uh, which is uh, I, IAVA membership, essentially. It, right it's there. a
2: whole veteran problem in that um, – the generation before us, are, you know, our fathers, Vietnam era, they're still the largest cohort, and so they're dying in the larger numbers. But uh, and, and you're going to need a solution that affects for both them as well as for the post-11 generation. But we are dying at a rate that's faster and unfortunately confirms what we are hearing through our survey, and we've been hearing that year over year.
0: One of the things, of course, that people are going to comment on in the survey is the Department of Veterans Affairs, and there are continuing issues uh, it seems every couple of months there's something new that that makes you shake exactly. your head. Right now, we're still dealing with the GI Bill benefits and the lack of payment. As of last Friday, the VFW was telling us 120,000 veterans still had not received their That's GI correct. Bill payments. Uh, what What have you heard in the past from your membership on the VA? Are they satisfied? Not so satisfied? How do they feel about it?
2: In general, for the VA, when it comes to health care and benefits. Basically, it's the barriers to care, barriers to access to benefits. That's the, the number one issue that we hear from our members. And we hear that, again, year over year in that once they're in a the system, they're satisfied. But when you're not in the system and you're trying to get into the system, that's mind-numbingly frustrating in order to get an appointment or to uh, use your GI benefits. And so we, we hear that across the board. And with regard to the GI Bill, uh, we know that our members in particular, again, post-and-11 generation, They're using it as a transition tool um, in numbers far exceeding for any other generation. And so it's obviously of very critical importance for us to ensure that the GI Bill is something that you can access and use freely.
0: How frustrating and maddening is it to know that this uh, benefit that's supposed to be uh, a life changer when it comes to post-military careers for people Mm -hmm. has now turned into a life changer in the opposite direction where we're hearing about people being evicted. We're hearing about people having their cars repossessed. I mean, this is a program that's supposed to prepare you for success and right now is putting some people way behind the eight ball.
2: Yeah, and we're actually hearing from... Those who have called into our Rapid Response Referral Program uh, or RIP program, and we've had Patrice Sullivan, one of our veteran transition managers on the program here before, we're uh, hearing of clients who are calling in who are saying that they're having problems with eviction notices, rent, other issues like that because they don't have their GI Bill, GI Bill benefits because they recognize that, Having that BAH, it's critical in order to be able to transition out of military life and not have to think about how am I going to pay my bills. It's, it's just shameful that this is still something we're dealing with. And so a hearing actually was just added to the legislative agenda for just after the elections. I believe November 14th is the date um, out of the House Veterans Affairs Committee to look into this because they recognize that this is just absolutely absurd.
0: It wouldn't have been as big a problem if there was any sort of lead-up time. I mean, maybe those students should have predicted that the VA wouldn't do things right, but they shouldn't have to think about it. They shouldn't have to think way. about it. There was, no, there was no warning, essentially. August 1st comes. That's when the uh, GI Bill benefits were supposed to be in place. That was a deadline given to the VA. It doesn't happen. Students mm-hmm. start classes. They don't get money. They were planning... Based on the VA being able to competently do their job and get the money where it was supposed to go, and now some of them are losing their apartments, losing yeah. their houses, losing their cars. I
2: can't imagine. I mean, I myself used the GI Bill for a year. I used it to transition into advocacy, so I could sit here before all of you and talk about IA VA. And so, when I was using it to do a master's in policy, um, I can't. Imma- I owned a house at the time. I can't imagine not being able to pay my mortgage when i'm trying to transition and better my life in order to end up in this work i just it, it blows my mind to think of after a year of this becoming legislation this becoming law that we're still facing these implementation challenges
0: and talking to uh, other people in the veteran world about this issue the va hasn't fixed the initial problem they're going basically uh, instance by instance and going individually to pay people back we very well may seem the same exact thing happen in the spring semester. Do you think that that, the fall semester issues that we've already had, the spring semester issues that may well come up, do you think that those uh, those two issues, particularly the fall due to the timing of the survey, will have an effect on how people answer when they talk about educational benefits?
2: Oh, I'm sure it will. Uh, I, I think that there, there's all sorts of Things that we think of when we're putting together the survey and it needs to be something that's durable. It needs to be something that captures the attitudes of veterans um, for years to come because we come back and look at this data. We look at when it was deployed and we look at, uh, you know, whether the GI Bill was a higher priority for folks because it was deployed in the fall before Veterans Day. Uh, That said, the trends, uh, they continue on regardless of when we deploy the survey. And we've done it multiple times throughout the year. Um, depending on, you know, when you go back years back. And so, yes, we put that into context. But by the same token, we generally hear the same thoughts from folks year-round.
0: We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, a.k.a. I-A-V-A. Of course, it's a lengthy survey in the amount of questions, the amount of data you're going to get a whole lot out of it. The people who take it have to put a whole lot into it. and. Mm -hmm. Filling out surveys is never fun. Yeah. I mean, we can all remember the mandatory surveys that the command forced you to fill out. About the only surveys in the world, I think, to get 100% response <laughs> rates are the ones put out by the military where the COs are told, you need to get 100% responses. <laughs> you guys have kind of sweetened the pot a little bit this year. Those who finish, not just start, but finish the survey are put into a drawing for airplane tickets on Southwest. How cool is that? And where'd, that idea, right. where'd that idea come from?
2: Well, all of- most surveys that are good, you know, when they're not command directed like you talk about, uh, will have some type of incentive. And so, when you take it from whether it's Blue Star Families, uh, Wounded Warrior Project, usually it's some sort of trinket or something. Is, is like a involved. tote bag is, yes. is
0: often the, uh, the who gift? needs
2: another tote bag. But what <laughs> you do need is air travel, and hopefully, air travel around the holidays. And so that's why we give this incentive for Southwest Vouchers. They're an amazing partner of IAVAs, um, have been for years, and so we try to do what we can because we know it's a lengthy survey. We know it's a time investment, but as I tell all of my friends, help me do my job. Help me do my job better, and this is what's going to do that.
0: And there's going to be uh, five people who are able to get round-trip free airfare on a Southwest flight to a destination in the United States of their choosing, so that's a pretty darn cool thing what sort of response rate do you guys expect annually on a survey like this from your membership? What's the overall membership numbers?
2: Mm -hmm. And then how
0: many typically respond to the survey in full?
2: Our overall membership numbers are uh, 425,000. Now that includes also non-veteran supporters, families, Mm -hmm. folks like that. So when you control for that population, when you control for those who are veterans of the post and 11 generation, and I'm not going to get into the details because that's Steph's job to, to jam the numbers, but, um, when you break all of that down, we essentially get a sample size. Uh, last year, we have forty three hundred respondents with an eighty five percent completion rate. And so, when you're looking at that completion rate, that's extremely high for uh, any survey, really. Um, generally speaking, you want to get over fifty percent. Um, so, getting to eighty five percent is important. And then, getting that accurate sample size within your confidence intervals and a whole bunch of other statistical, you know, mumbo jumbo that I can rattle, you know, rattle off here. But the generally What we shoot for is to have a competent sample size so that we can ensure that we're saying, yes, you are speaking on behalf of the members, because we know that that not all members are going to take the survey.
0: Who's eligible to take it? Is it just the IAVA member veterans? Is it the support people as well? Who who can fill the, out the survey? The member
2: veterans. Um, there's essentially, if you're a supporter, um, you can access the survey. If you received an email from yours truly last week and you received the link, then you can access that link. Uh, but we filter the responses. And mm-hmm. so we filter the responses so that we can say that 75% of veterans said they want to see cannabis, for example, as a treatment option from the VA. So that's something where we filter out that information based off of how you have answered your questions.
0: Well, it sounds like from the uh, the number of people who respond to the survey, those are pretty good odds of getting some Southwest Airline tickets if people (laughs) do that. There's
2: some pretty good odds there. And, uh, you know, again, this is just really ensuring that we're able to speak on your behalf when you look at a lot of surveys sometimes you see a sample size of maybe you know 500 800 so we try to get into the thousands just to make sure that we are reaching those conference levels we're within our errors of margin and we're ensuring that we are truly speaking with your voice when we go to the va when we go to dod when we go to um uh the hill and advocate for your issues
0: We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, a.k.a. IAVA. Of course, we're coming up on uh, a couple of big days. First, uh, it's just, wow, next week now. We're going to have an election Tuesday taking place. (laughs) Yeah. uh, What do you think the veterans who are running for office uh, have to offer? If those who get into office, what difference do you think they'll make on Capitol Hill, if anything, specifically as it relates to veterans?
2: You know, um... General McChrystal uh, was making the rounds through the media last week talking about veterans and, and talk, well, talking about leadership in general. But he also wrote an op-ed where he spoke about veterans and saying that, you know, veterans aren't a panacea. And, you know, there's some really great ones who are out there doing yeoman's work for our community. There's some other ones who simply mention their status as a way of getting your attention. Yeah. And then they really don't they, – they drop the ball essentially on veterans' issues. So. The hope and uh, what we do every January when there's a new Congress coming in every other year is we uh, host to bring in veterans, not just veterans, uh, lawmakers, but all lawmakers. But we specifically focus on veteran lawmakers and say, hey, look, if you want to understand what the issues are, if you want to understand the top policy priorities and ways to help, we have this guidebook called our policy agenda, called our member survey and uh, other materials from IAVA where we hope to steer them in the right direction. And that's generally what we're planning to do in January.
0: There are a ton. I mean, we're talking three digits when it comes to a number of veterans in the races still at this point. Now, some of them are a big time long shot to get in. Some of them seem like pretty sure things to get in. Has the organization, IAVA, had any contact with any other candidates? And what are they saying to you, the ones that you've talked to? Uh,
2: I I can't mention specifically any candidates who have come to us. Uh, Generally speaking, we do not endorse candidates. We are a 501c3. However, if you come to us asking for information, saying, what do I need to know, then that's when I will hand in them the policy agenda. I will hand them our big six priorities. I will hand them our member survey, and then I can tell them that we care about everything from suicide to the GI Bill to care and recognition of women veterans to burn pits toxic, and toxic exposures, cannabis, and, of course, VA and DOD reform. And that's generally what we tell them, to arm them with that information. What I would encourage is that if you're listening out there and you go to a town hall in your local area and you hear folks talking, tell them, what about veteran issues? If you don't hear those six things rattled off, then, A, they probably haven't talked to me, and, B, they may have not have their finger on the pulse of what's necessary. But it's incumbent upon all of us in our local communities, especially given this midterm election, to make sure that veteran issues remain a focus.
0: And it's also, uh, here's another example of how, responding to the IAVA survey, you're essentially giving information to IAVA, who then gives that information directly to the new members of Congress, veterans and not. And, uh, you know, it can be difficult to get the attention of your congressional representative if you live in a place that's got whole bunch of people living there they've got a lot of people to answer to Mm -hmm. this is a way to make your voice heard on a larger scale that it's very hard for them to ignore if not impossible
2: absolutely you know i'll give you another example if we have a meeting set up by our legislative director tom porter who's been on this show many times let's say he's going into a meeting and he's talking to uh, someone in the house or senate and they say well i want to know what my constituents think well we can cross tab that survey Mm. we can go back and look and say well we had Uh, 200 respondents in name your place in, in anywhere America, USA, and we can say that they care about these issues. And so that's another way in which you are actually speaking truth to power. We're taking your voice directly and putting it in front of your representative.
0: Of course, Veterans Day is also coming up. Uh, People celebrate Veterans Day in different ways. Uh, How is IAVA spending Veterans Day? You guys doing anything special for the holiday?
2: Well, of course we are because we (laughs) celebrate Veterans Day in the way that uh, is the biggest and splashiest way that only IAVA can do. Uh, And on November 8th, we have our annual Heroes Gala. And so this is the 12th year running, and it's going to – we used to have a Cipriani, which is, you know, venerable New York City location, venue. We wanted to freshen up a bit this year. So we're moving to the Classic Car Museum for our Heroes Gala on November 8th. It's going to be really fun. We've got Stephen Colbert, Jeffrey Wright from Westworld, one of my favorite shows. Uh, We've got Rob Riggle, who is our honorary – or excuse me, our honored veteran uh, of the year. And uh, we also have uh, Craig Newmark, who has – really been focused on veteran issues and and, and charitable giving for veteran issues. And he is our honored civilian of the year.
0: Very cool. Of course, Rob Riggle retired as a Marine Corps officer, which is kind of it's contradictory, isn't it, <laughs> to think of how funny he is, and then the fact that he was also, I think, a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps he when he retired. Those guys are not known for their sense of humor, generally.
2: They're not known for their sense of humor, but you know <laughs> what? I guess you have to have a sense of humor to make it out of the Marines. Well,
0: that's true, <laughs> to to be in the Marine Corps for over two decades while also balancing a career in Hollywood. Really a fascinating guy who has a fascinating story. So the 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 Heroes Gala that mm-hmm. IAVA has, if someone goes to the Heroes Gala, I mean, what can they expect? Does? this, of course, like the black tie, tuxedo, and ball gown type no, of deal?
2: No, not us. I mean, biz, biz, business attire, of course, you know, you can't show up in jeans. But uh, you know what? Even if you did show up in jeans, you'd probably find a way to let you in. <laughs> we're, we're all inclusive at IAVA, And so it's a great time. Um, it's a wonderful venue. It's right on the water up in New York City. And if you go to heroesgala.org, you can find out more about that. But I'm just super excited. Uh, Megan McCain's also going to be there as well. Mm. And so um, it, it's always a great time at our gala. Last year we honored Flo Groberg and you know he's telling his story of you know uh, the events that led to his receiving the Medal of Honor and I don't think there was a dry eye in the house
0: yeah, it, it's a fantastic story. Uh, well, not a fantastic story. It's a horrifying story, but it's an amazing story of, yeah. of <laughs> what what someone can do uh, when when faced with uh, a split second decision and and doing the right thing. Did he tell his uh, his Oreo story? He did. Oh man, that that gets me. And having known quite a few people who've gone through Ranger School, of he gets the care package. He's told, hey, you can choose one thing from this care package, and he thinks. Well, logically, there's a whole big pack of Oreos. All right, I'll take that. It's got the most. I'll be able to eat Oreos for days. He said, "All right, open it up. Take one cookie out." So he got he got his one Oreo cookie. Yeah, he's <laughs> a he's a fascinating guy, Mr. Groberg, Medal of Honor recipient. So, of course, a lot going on uh, for IAVA. They've got the survey going on now. They've got the Heroes Gala coming up uh, just about a week from now, up mm-hmm. in New York City. Are tickets still available for that? Can people still get in?
2: You can still get in if you go to HeroesGala.org. You you can find out a whole lot more about that. And then if you're still in New York City on the eleventh, the annual New York City Veterans Day Parade, we'll be marching there as well. We'll have a tent set up, so come look for us.
0: That is very cool. And we're gonna be talking to Jason McCarthy from Go who's actually one of the like grand marshals of the parade. I think yep. he's leading the thing off, which you know, he's a guy who walks for a living, essentially. So, good person to have lead off a parade. Although, it sounds like they might want him to ride in a car, which uh, doesn't seem like his type of deal. You know.
2: Well, as long as it's a Humvee. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
0: You know, the Green Berets who are uh, go rock doing their fifty-mile star marches and all that stuff. A lot of good stuff going on there. But let's talk about IAVA just in general. Of course, as I mentioned earlier in the program. It's a free organization to join. Unlike many of the VSOs, there are no membership dues. Who is the right member for IAVA? Who do you think should be clicking that join link on the IAVA.org website?
2: If you have served since... It's September 11th, 2001, then you should join. If you served before September 11th, 2001, you should join. We are welcoming to all of our generations. Of course, we are focused on advancing the life and, and the quality of life, rather, for our post-11 generation. But if you are a supporter or if you're a member of uh, another era of service, please join INVA.
0: And, of course, we've been talking about the survey as we speak with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for IAVA. And this survey is going to basically designate what the roadmap is for IAVA's policy. If people want to take that survey, if they're members or if they're interested in becoming members to take the survey, how do they do that? Is there like a specific place on the website to go to or or how do they get the info? If
2: you are already a member, you will have seen uh, several emails already that have gone to you in the last couple of weeks. The first one would have come from... Uh, Paul Reikhoff, our CEO and founder himself. The second one would have come from me last week that you will have received. Keep looking for those emails. Those are prompts to let you know to take the survey. There's a a link there. If you are not a member and you've been sitting on the sidelines and and thought about IAVA but still haven't pulled the trigger, then go ahead and join. Go to iava.org backslash hashtag or pound if you're old like me. (laughs) Joined.
0: Yeah, the pound sign. You don't hear people talk. You don't
2: hear people say that anymore. (laughs) But uh, that's essentially the link that you want to go to. And if you go to uh, all of our social channels, our Facebook, Twitter, at IAVA, you can see again links to join, so that you can ver we can verify your service, and then you can be a verified member, and you can take the survey.
0: Well, there you go. And it sounds like the uh, Paul Reichoff uh, email was like the CEO's original one. Hey, need everybody to fill this out. And there comes Melissa Bryan and the XO or command master <laughs> chief role all, like ah. Uh, you remember when he said everybody fell it out? Still hasn't an happened. Let's get it done. If you get it done and complete the survey, you'll be put into a drawing for round trip free tickets on Southwest Airlines. And all it takes is a little bit of your time. That doesn't cost you anything, and you could get a pretty fantastic reward out of that. Our thanks to Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of IAVA, also Oscar winner and Royal Navy veteran, Nick Reed. A Soldier's Story is the documentary. As he said, he's working on getting it to some places where people can check it out. But if you Google Nick Reed and look, Look him up and look up Soldier Story. You'll find out more about that. And you'll hear more from us coming up tomorrow on the Tuesday edition of the Morning Briefing. We're going to have more great news, information, and interviews coming your way. We'll see you then.